Coming up on Tech Nation, after truly defining the work of a tech evangelist and also writing 14 books, Guy Kawasaki joins me to talk about himself. He's here with Wise Guy, Lessons from a Life. Then Pat Kondo from Intent describes how our world is changing now that we can speak to the tech around us. In fact, so can everyone else in the world. Then Helen Torley from Halizyme explores how we might fight different aspects of a cancer, making existing cancer treatments more effective. Their first target, pancreatic cancer, with other cancers soon to follow. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five. With Moira Gunn, this is 5 Minutes. Okay, I confess, I usually watch the Oscars. And one time, over a decade ago, I actually wrote a commentary about that experience. It was the year that the Hollywood movie industry figured out that people would rather rent a DVD and stay in for the night to watch their favorite movie. You don't have to be an economist to figure it out. It meant fewer people were going to movie theaters, and that source of revenue was declining. In fact, there was a new phenomenon, the video rental store, which bought the DVD of a movie, at which point the movie production company was paid. And then they rented it out multiple times, and who knew how much of that revenue, if any, went back to the production company which created it. It was so much easier to figure it out when one theater ticket got sold and a piece of that went back to the creator. All of these deals are never quite so simple, but you know when a business is feeling the pinch without knowing any of it. In this case, the MC of the Oscars and numerous presenters that evening made comment after comment about how movies were so much more enjoyable in theaters. I started to take notes after the third comment. It was almost laughable. The next year at the Oscars, I listened attentively and nary a reference to the DVD issue or it's better to go to a theater was made. It was clear that somehow the issue was resolved or accepted or a deal was struck. Remembering that the laws of economics are all man-made. Humans can think up new deals and as long as everyone can eat, the deal goes forward. In fact, Video streaming was just around the corner, and that meant you didn't even have to go to the video rental store on Friday night to get your evening's entertainment. These were the same stores that first popped up with VHS tapes and quickly changed when DVDs came along. But with video streaming on the Internet or from your cable provider straight to your TV, well, there was no need to go down to the store anymore. Before long, the store wasn't even there. Blockbuster was the largest to fall. Still, not a peep about all that at the Oscars.
notable is that between renting DVDs in stores and video streaming right into your home was mailing DVDs, and here enters Netflix. Fresh off a tech startup success, one of its founders was furious at being charged $40 as a late fee when returning a DVD to Blockbuster. That was about 1997, and the mailing of DVDs to people was new. They could mail them back when convenient, and there would be no late fees. This turned out to be brilliant. Time has passed, much has happened, and then the odds-on favorite to win the Oscar for Best Movie was a Netflix-produced movie. And yet, it didn't win. Rumor has it that there was a backlash. Netflix was perceived to produce made-for-TV fare, and so this really wasn't a movie. You might have noticed that I've used the term movie and not film, since most Oscar-nominated films today are digital. That's right. Say goodbye to the film, Gracie. Technology has marched right up, stealthily, and may have upended the artistic perception of what the Hollywood movie industry believes about itself. Yes, technology is the silent partner of history. Let's see if next year, Netflix gets to be one of the in-crowd. You know I'll be watching. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Guy Kawasaki, today the chief evangelist for Canva and an executive fellow of the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. Perhaps best known as the former chief evangelist of Apple, he looks back on his life, distilling its lessons, and looks forward with insights into the evolution of social media. Then Pat Kondo, the CEO of Intent, talks about voice. Yes, you can speak to your smartphone and your personal digital assistant, but it's time to understand what's happening all over the world. Then I'll speak with Helen Torley from Halazyme Therapeutics. Its work to make chemotherapy more effective in pancreatic cancer is in phase three trials, while other cancers will also be addressed using this same approach. And now, Guy Kawasaki, the author of Wise Guy, Lessons from a Life. Guy, welcome back to Tech Nation. I'm grateful to be here. Oh, good, good. Well, you've got a new book here, and you're adamant. It is not a memoir. It is not an autobiography. It's a plane. It's a train. What is it? It's miso soup for the soul. Oh, no. <laughs> Obviously, you couldn't get that or your publisher would have put it on the and, uh, Well, I'm, I'm riffing off, obviously, chicken soup for the soul, which is a collection of people's stories. But you're in all of them. <laughs> I mean, all of them. Yeah. What a coincidence. So these are all my stories. And it's a collection that covers topics as varied as Business, social media, Apple, values, parenting, kids, surfing, hockey. It's a mishmash of my life. 
Well, it's an interesting mishmash, uh, and I, I like the fact that you, you reach back to your grandparents and their decisions to come over from Japan to Hawaii to better their lives. Yes. A story everybody has whose ancestors came to the United States, and uh, nobody said, let's go there, it'll be terrible. No, <laughs> well, was, they may be saying that now. But, well, yeah, but not then. <laughs> um, and then, uh, of course, they uh, gave birth to your father, and and. I didn't realize this. What? But uh, your father, of course, was a, a musician. I mean, I'd always known him as a longtime member of the Hawaii Senate. Senate, You know, yes. that's who he was, 20-plus years, something yes. like that. And I didn't realize, being a, the music aficionado he was, <laughs> he named you after Guy Lombardo. Yep. That beats being named after Carmen Lombardo. His brother. Brother. His brother. <laughs> I could easily have been named Carmen Kawasaki, yeah, which just doesn't cut no, it. No, I don't think so. <laughs> and for those people in the audience who either, you know, their parents weren't musically inclined or who are below a certain age, who is Guy 50. Lombardo? 50. <laughs> Guy Lombardo was a Canadian big band leader. So he was, you know, the sort of, Duke Ellington, Count Basie kind of stuff, jazz, and yeah. And he also always played on New Year's Eve. Old Lang Syne. Old Lang Syne. So yeah. that, there, was, there weren't multiple channels back then. No, no, no. That's how weren't. everybody knew about Guy Lombardo. Yep. You know, so there you are. Guy there Lomb I am. Are you Guy Lombardo Kawasaki? No. Just Guy Kawasaki. <laughs> no, one's, one's, it's a good thing I'm not Guy Carmen Lombardo <laughs> yeah. Kawasaki. You got, you got lucky. You got lucky that day. Your father had a had an ear for those things. Yeah. He, was, he, was, he had this eyeball on politics. <laughs> and your mother, who I've always thought was just a wonderful gal, the, you, I've always said this. She says, always leave a place neater than you found it. Yes. <laughs> this is a value that I have not been able to inculcate into my children. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps you didn't repeat it often. I, I'm, what, am I, what can I say? I'm a failure. <laughs> <laughs> and throughout the book, every so often, you have these side boxes entitled Wisdom. Yes. In case you don't know what's in it. Like, look yeah. here. Look here. Yes. Uh, with a suggestion or two, not unlike... Uh, always leave a place neater than you found it. Now, it's not a summation about what you're writing about, which you usually see in boxes at books. You know, it's like, and this is what we talked about in this chapter. So much of a, while we're talking about this, that reminds me. <laughs> well, I, I'm trying to draw a lesson, you know. So every story is in there because it teaches a wisdom. Every story. So there's no story in there that's just in there for the sake of amusement or the hell of it. There's a lesson in every story. I've done the deductive reasoning for my reader, basically. Well, it's not always uh, obvious how they're connected. I mean, you were describing the neighborhood you grew up in in Oahu, a mm -hmm. poor neighborhood, and yet you go right to the wisdom box, and sometimes there are multiple wisdoms there, yeah. and you say, change a losing game. Yes. What does that mean, and why is it there? Change a losing game refers to really my grandparents' you know, decision that in Japan at the time, there were limitations on what they could do, how far they could go, et cetera, et cetera. So rather than gut it out in Japan, they got on a boat <laughs> and moved to Hawaii. And I think that's a sign of, you know, you change a losing game. You don't just accept it. Um, you give an example of being in meetings and saying, whoa, this is a losing game. Got to change it up. Yes, or losing company. 
<laughs> Although you can also leave a company too early, as I have proven three or four times. <laughs> <laughs> or not sign up at the company. Yeah, well, yeah. That happens. But let's talk about that. You're in a meeting. How do you know suddenly it's a losing game? You're not leaving your job or you're talking with another company. Explain what that means. Well, it depends if you're a man or a woman. Okay, I so, like this. So yes. if you're a woman, you will instinctively know. If you're a man, you have no freaking clue. So you should ask a woman. <laughs> I think women have better judgment. Well, I they really, certainly need I really do. If we listen to you, your mother. They're very much yeah. needed. At, uh, uh, my, in my case, you know, my wife is the brains of the outfit. <laughs> I'm just the pretty face. You're just the pretty face. <laughs> my goodness, Beth isn't here. But at any rate, uh, well, it is interesting. Well, she's a pretty face and the brains. <laughs> and the brains. Well, it's interesting that you say that. I remember Marion Cleves Diamond, who is a neuroscientist from Berkeley. Can't say that I hang with her, but okay. Okay. Uh, she actually could give you some science to verify what you've said here. Well, what I said is true? Yes. Because I never let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> you know you don't, but that's okay. So I have academic, you know. Yeah. Yeah, gravitas. Uh, this gravitas is this behind this? Little, one little part. Oh, that makes me that, feel much better. Uh, she was saying that they showed uh, men and women yeah. uh, pictures yeah. of men and women yeah. both crying you know, or in angst and pain or uh, happy, smiling and glowing. When they showed it to guys, they pretty much knew when guys were unhappy. And then sometimes when they thought they were happy, it turns out, mm, you know, but m- most of the time they got it. When they showed the women to the men, it was either worse than random. <laughs> or they just didn't get it. Couldn't tell happy and sad. Really? Sent the same picture, showed them to the women, and they were able to distinguish happy from sad in both genders. Which says to me, if you're going to go into a negotiation, then if, you don't, if, you, if you don't have a woman with you or you're not a woman, you got to say, are they happy? They're smiling. And she's <laughs> like, they're very unhappy. <laughs> this know? brings me to a Steve Jobs story. Go for it. So the Steve Jobs story is that right before the completion of the Macintosh design, Steve and Susan Barnes went to Japan to negotiate with Sony to put the Sony disk drive in the Macintosh. And Sony told Steve they will not negotiate with a woman. And Steve told Sony, if you won't negotiate with Susan, you won't have our business. So, see, Steve even knew that he needed a woman. Well, he had a lot of women, but I mean, in a good business sense, he had a lot of managers who were women. Yes. Well before anybody said you ought to, and more than we would consider, you know, threshold today. Yeah, it wasn't tokenism, and it was before... Jerry Brown made sure that you had a woman as a board member. But no, he was ahead of his time because Steve, Steve, he didn't care if you were, you know, well, Steve didn't care about your race, your religion, your gender, your sexual orientation. Whether you take a shower or not. Really, he didn't care about any of that. You were either good or crap. And that was it. That was it was a black and white world for Steve. And I don't mean racial. I mean <laughs> a one or a zero a world. A one or a zero. Yes. That's what you get. Now, these wisdom boxes show up every so often. And they're like one or there's two or three max, I think. And they have they have this hand sign. <laughs> the hand sign is, yes. you know, the, the little finger is, is stuck up in the air. Then the three middle fingers are folded down. And then and you the get thumb a, the out. thumb is stuck out. What does this mean? Oh, that's a Hawaiian slash surfing symbol called shaka. 
and it's kind of right on, you know, uplifting, power to the people. I mean, it's all the good stuff. It's, it's kind of just aloha, good. mahalo, right on, <laughs> all rolled into one. It's it's. Kind of like some of the German words, you know, you just <laughs> yeah, to just explain what the German word Yeah, they put a bunch of them together. Yeah. And that's a new word. And yeah. That's it. Why and did you put those things? Well, I put that so that the reader after a chapter or two has now learned that every time they see a shaka, here comes a wisdom. Because oh. I like to signal my intent. So, that's yeah. That's right. I'll have to go see. Now, did you point the thumb to the wisdom or the... Pink, doesn't matter. Uh, doesn't really matter. Just <laughs> has to stand next to it. See, there's not a you lot mean of full etiquette. frontal wisdom. <laughs> now, did you get your publishers in on this? Did they were they up for this? Yeah, I mean, they even put it on the spine. I, uh, Ooh, and the the penguin um, symbol is this. I don't know. I don't know it's Mercury or somebody, you know, holding a spear. Is, if you look at the not spine, not a penguin, which is kind of scary. no, it's not a penguin. And I tried to get them to. Get that warrior to have a shaka. I didn't go for that. Yeah, that's probably just, against some corporate, you know. Yeah, you got as far as you could. I tried. I you tried. tried. I you tried. tried. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Guy Kawasaki. Today, Guy is the chief evangelist for Canva, the online graphic design tool, a brand ambassador for Mercedes Benz, and an executive fellow of the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. If you've been around for a while, you know him as the chief evangelist of Apple in the early Macintosh days and for his many books, including The Art of the Start, Enchantment, and The Art of Social Media. He's here today with Wise Guy, Lessons from a Life. I have to say, I went back just quickly and looked at your books and I didn't realize it was going to bring up the covers. I've forgotten some of those haircuts. Some of those haircuts <laughs> were pretty exciting. <laughs> you know, everybody has mistakes. <laughs> Live and learn. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. Um, going through to teachers then, you know, if we're sort of going through your early life here pretty quick here. I love the fact you showed a report card from your freshman <laughs> year in high school. Let me quote. Guy relaxed conspicuously this quarter and his grades slipped down as he did. <laughs> 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 well, this is there. There's a lot of wisdom there, but one of it is selective memory because I've been telling my kids oh, in high school I studied hard, I was so serious, you know, I like graduated number five in my class or something like that, and uh, and then in doing research for the book, oh my God, I found this English report card and I was getting a C. God forbid, you know, Asian American get a C. I, mean, I felt the moral obligation to not only tell my family about that and show them that report card, I also printed it. And that's uh, the wisdom there is selective memory is a powerful force. As a parent, <laughs> as a parent. Another area where you print something and you're in its entirety is the commencement speech you yes. once gave to Menlo School and your advice being delivered David Letterman style, yes. you know, top 10, yes. right, starting with top 10, running down to number one. And I can't decide which of two I like best. <laughs> number two, which is very like late, that's like one of the last most important is don't get married too early. Yes. I thought that was a good, yeah. <laughs> that's a good piece of advice. Have you ever heard of anybody who got married too late? No. Nah, okay. Nah, rest nah, my case. Rest yes. your case. Yeah. But uh, one I think it's important is challenge the known and embrace the unknown. Yes. That's definitely a Steveism too. So, I think many people go through life, and you know what's known they accept, and what's unknown uh, they refuse. 
<laughs> and it should be the opposite. You should always challenge. You know, when somebody says this is what it is, you should question that. In but, a nice way. <laughs> but in a nice way. But And I would say that's especially true today because of social media. And I'm not saying that you can believe everything the New York Times says. I'm not saying you cannot believe anything Breitbart says. But the general attitude should be skepticism, no matter who it comes from. Maybe the only source you can more or less trust is Wikipedia, because I was on the board of Wikipedia, and the amount of thrashing that goes on in order to get something into Wikipedia is incredible. So once it gets to Wikipedia, you can pretty much assume that it's been looked at 16 ways to Sunday. But you know, any random post, uh, I think you have to be skeptical. And, and when politicians say, well, we're going to have Mark Zuckerberg come in here and, you know, we're going to tell them that Facebook can't publish or promote fake news anymore, it just shows you their stupidity. I mean, how do they think that any algorithm, any company can suss out all the fake news? Well, and first of all, the, the definition of fake news today is whatever you don't agree with. Right? So what is fake news? Global warming is fake news? To who? To some people, it is fake news. To other people, it's hard science. So how do you decide that one? And while we're on the subject of social media, I was going to ask you what has and hasn't worked. And yet I saw this piece of wisdom. If someone with more than 10 million followers <laughs> offers to help you, you should probably accept the help. Yes. Why? I mean, I think people aren't thinking this direction. Talk about that. <laughs> well, that comes from an episode with Hillary Clinton. So I went to a Hillary Clinton rally, and I was a big Hillary Clinton supporter. The people who were putting it on, the Silicon Valley, you know, Clinton people, uh, wanted me there and all that. So, okay. And so a lot of funny things happened at that rally. So first of all, this was just when Facebook Live was really sort of peaking. And, you know, it was when you went live on Facebook, thousands, if not tens of thousands of people watched you. And so I was broadcasting her speech from this house on Facebook Live. And one of the campaign people came up and said to me, no video. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? So you 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 have so many electoral votes, we can just, you know, sort of kick back now? And why would you? Anyway, so, uh, and then they rush you through this receiving line where you're standing with her, and they have a professional photographer taking the picture. They don't let you take selfies or anything because I guess it would be too inefficient, which I can understand. But there's like four assistants standing there. Why can't I hand them the camera and say, all right, so, you know, take a picture with me? Have someone standing there constantly taking, yeah. Yeah, you would think. And so, you know, I happen to have gotten the photo that's in the book. But there were 500 other people there. Did they all get their picture with Hillary Clinton to share on social media? I would be astounded if that's true. Because how would they have kept track of, here's the Smiths, here's the Joneses, here's the Changs, here are the, we got to get all the, you know. <laughs> you every, get everybody in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so after this all happened, I told the Silicon Valley people, listen, I really believe I want to help. Let me know. I can help you with your social media. I can try to help you optimize how you post, all this kind of stuff. I'll fly to New York, to your campaign, whatever you want. And they basically told me, no, we got it. 
okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if if uh if Elizabeth Warren or <laughs> Kristen or, you know, I don't know about Bernie. If somebody wants to reach out to me, reach out to me because I still believe strongly. I'm like, I'm resisting. Well, we talk so much about divisiveness uh, in the United States today, but there's a natural divide between the people who understand social media and technology and the people who don't. You know, there. This is a really difficult. It's a difficult thing. It's like Hillary's. You know, thirty thousand emails. What's the nature of email? Email is sent to other people. Yeah. So what a concept. Yeah. So those emails are in other places. Yeah, you know, I, you mean we can't find one of them? And if <laughs> you delete it, it's gone. Yeah. But you're not deleting it over there and <laughs> right. over there and over right. there and, and all I, the You know, it's like the concept of 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 what that. Charges. It's like it's not like thirty thousand beans. The mm, beans disappear. No, you know, it's not like so. It, it, we we will have this, and I think we'll have it for a while. You know, as until more and more people get the picture, and um, uh, maybe a whole generation has to die off. Basically, I mean, what can I say? Uh, yeah, or, or retire and get on Facebook or, or <laughs> whatever. I mean, spend time with your great grandchildren. Well, but you've got what you have, though, is you have huge audiences. And as you say, when something's new, everybody rushes to it. Mm-hmm. But after the excitement dies down, you have a way to so many different people on the planet multiple ways. So if you have a shot to have them to get out to them, that's the shot you've got to grab. It's not the old Madison Avenue. It's not the old cable <laughs> versus broadcast. It's none of that stuff. No, no it's, it's the, the world's covered in distributed information. And you got to decide whole new how world. to do it. And we saw it in the Mueller Russians indictment. I mean, they figured out what were exactly the particular portions of the population they wanted to get to with all this internet strategy well, and meetups and all that jazz, and that's the ones they went for. In, in in a sense, you have to respect them for what they did. They used social media very well, better than, shall I say, the opposition. Uh, so, and the irony is, you know, most of us, I say us, you know, tech, Valley, you know, raging left wing <laughs> wingers <What? laughs> would have loved to have helped. Yeah, and, and it's it's not just the money. I mean, and all this the all these techies created it all. You thought so. I mean, I thought so, but uh, well, the, it, it's always true. The people who created technology can't see how it will ultimately be used. And I yeah. guess it's true in this case as well. Uh, something I thought was really important here is you say um, some. See humor when others see insults. Yeah. So it's appropriate we're in San Francisco when I tell this story. And and this is a story that's pivotal in my life. So here's the story. One day I'm in front of my house on Union Street, where Union Street dead ends into the Presidio. So it's a nice area for people. Beautiful, high-end area. Yeah, Yeah. for people who haven't, you know, that's where the Gettys live, right, and stuff. (laughs) And so I'm out there and I'm truing. I'm out there and I'm trimming my bougainvillea hedge. And this older white woman comes up to me and says, do you do lawns too? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, oh, so I'm Japanese. So you assume that I'm the yard man, but I actually own this house. So that's a pretty good story right there. There's a little wisdom, you know, 
Don't assume, don't racial profile, you know, all this kind of stuff. But wait, it gets better. I've been speaking with Guy Kawasaki, the author of Wise Guy, Lessons from a Life. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, the power of voice in our technologies. It's more powerful than you might suspect. And an approach to making cancer treatments more effective, starting with pancreatic cancer. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Guy Kawasaki, the author of Wise Guy, Lessons from a Life. One day I'm in front of my house on Union Street, where Union Street dead ends into the Presidio. So it's a nice area for people. Beautiful, yeah. high-end area. Yeah. Yeah. I'm out there and I'm trimming my bougainvillea hedge. And this older white woman comes up to me and says, do you do lawns too? <laughs> <laughs> And I said, oh, so I'm Japanese, so you assume that I'm the yard man, but I actually own this house. So that's a pretty good story right there. There's a little wisdom, you know, don't assume, don't racial profile, you know, all this kind of stuff. But wait, it gets better. So a few weeks later, my father comes over and I tell him the story. And I'm third generation Japanese American, makes him second. And he served in the U.S. Army, you know, the whole thing. So I figure he's just going to go off, right? Like, how dare We're Americans. Woman? Yeah. You know, you went to Stanford. You work for Apple. You're an author. How dare she think you're the yard man? Not at all. Instead, he tells me, you know, son, on Union Street, a Japanese person cutting a hedge, most likely you were the yard man. So get over it. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, I don't maybe it sounds silly to you, but that was a big moment for me because I learned, you know, don't look for trouble. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Take the high road. Don't take everything personally. See humor. I mean, it, that that is funny. So 
Uh, that was a big lesson in my life. Uh, it takes a lot to piss me off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're pretty, pretty, uh, pretty casual now. Shoka, is that right? I said it right. Shaka. 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 But what's sort of important to me is what someone said to me lately, which was, um, oh yeah, they could tell, you know, from this this uh, email, the person was angry. So that's going to get everybody riled up and they're going to get an angry response back. It's like if you if you don't slide into making it humorous, it probably is an insult. You're going to get angry. <laughs> anger invites anger. Yes. <laughs> and anger takes a lot more energy. Oh, yeah. I mean, you got to really work yourself up. You got to figure out how to get revenge and all that. Whereas humor, all you have to do is laugh. How hard could it be to laugh? So it's it's just, you know, it's rational to not get upset. <laughs> How's that? It's more energy efficient. Now, here's one that people don't normally think about. Anchor people. And it's corollary, of course. Don't be anchored. Let's talk about that. Anchoring? Yeah. Anchoring is very good trick or tip. So anchoring is when you're asked to make a quote, when you're asked to make a response or something. Uh, let's take let's take negotiating for a book advance. <laughs> okay. So a recent example. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know how, what kind of numbers we should use, but let, let's say you're negotiating with a book advance with your publisher, and. The theory of anchoring is, you know, whoever throws out the first number is going to anchor it. And so if the author says, I was thinking around 100, then the publisher would really have to have parts of his, his or her anatomy made of steel to come back and say, well, we were thinking of 5,000. Because yeah. somebody asked for 100, you come back with five. That's an insult. As opposed to we have 250,000 in the budget. Right, right. <laughs> On the flip side, you know, if the publisher says, well, we were thinking around 5,000, it's going to take, again, steel anatomy to come back and say, well, I was thinking of 100,000. So the trick here is put down the first number. Now, the downside of anchoring is what if they really wanted to pay 200,000 and you, try, you anchored yeah. them too low? You put the anchor on yourself. But you have to understand the situation somewhat to know what's ungodly, right? And so that's the technique. And my daughter uses it on me all the time where she says, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, Dad, can we go to the Justin Bieber concert? <laughs> so she's anchored me high, right? And so then I can't say, no, but I'll take you to eat ice cream. It's got to be higher than that because at the extreme it was Justin Bieber. Um, on the other hand, if I say, honey, I'll take you to eat ice cream, she's not going to say, no, dad, we're going to a Justin Bieber concert. So that's anchoring. So That's anchoring. And so should you be the first one out there or you just have to kind of play it by uh, ear? I, I think that the more certain you are, that the other party really wants to do something and you have more power, you should put the first number down. And so if you're buying a house and you know that this house has been listed for six months and it has three price reductions, anchor low because you know that they can't bluff you. I mean, the data is there, right? It's been listed. It's been reduced twice. On the flip side, 
if it's a brand new listing and you go to the open house and you can't even get in the house because so many people are there and, you know, people are like asking specific questions like, you know, how fast can the seller close? I have cash. Yeah, you probably <laughs> can't anchor <laughs> the seller too low. <laughs> yeah. Throw the anchor up in the air. Yeah, right. <laughs> if you've got that kind of thing. No, I didn't know you had... Uh, is it Meniere's disease? Meniere's disease, yes. Meniere's disease. Describe that for people. Meniere's disease is when you have three symptoms, hearing loss, tinnitus, which is ringing, and sporadic attacks of vertigo. And so I have Meniere's disease. I, if you ever talk to me on this side and I ignore you, Moira, it's not because I'm being a jerk. It's because I literally don't hear you. <laughs> so, you know, not having hearing, constantly having a buzzing in your ear and every once in a while getting an uh, uh, attack of vertigo, you know, it's... Not exactly a way you want to live your life. On the other hand, and this comes with age, if somebody said to me, so the worst thing that's going to happen to you before you drop dead is Meniere's disease, I would take that deal right now. I describe Meniere's disease as um, the worst of the best diseases because nobody ever died from Meniere's disease. And it's better to have the worst of the best diseases than the best of the worst diseases. Right. So right. that's my attitude with Meniere's. And it it's fundamentally affected my life because now I, I, I turn down situations and things that may cause it to get worse without any hesitation. Uh-huh. What would cause it to get worse? Well, uh, undue stress, a lot of salt, a lot really? of alcohol. Mm. And a lot of caffeine. But, you know, there is there's no cure and there's no exact knowledge of what causes it. I've also had an operation so that I haven't had vertigo, knock on wood, since the recovery of that operation. But, you know, as I said, nobody ever died from Meniere's. So, so lucky. Lucky you. And you you also say, turn bad experience into something good. You remind me of a friend of mine who had a hearing loss in one ear. And uh, he would uh, always, you know, turn yeah. one ear to you. And, and uh, other friends of ours say, well, why can't they be more like Scott? You know, he always listens to you and pays attention. <laughs> and he just was turning his good ear. And he had to. He had to. Yeah. <laughs> when we, no, no, he got hit by a baseball. You know, <laughs> when he well, was what, a kid. You know, one thing for me, for me, for Meniere's is very seldom do I go to a party or a cocktail reception. Because when you have Meniere's, the tinnitus and the hearing loss, that's a real painful experience because the sound is bouncing all over and you can't tell where people are talking to you and, and all that. And it's also very funny. My kids love to torment me. So if, if I were in a hotel lobby and there's eight elevators and the elevator comes, it goes bing. But because I'm basically definite here i cannot tell what direction it's from so oh. i have no idea which door just went bing <laughs> so so they love to uh watch help that. you yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> they don't your children don't help yeah them. now my number one favorite and there's a lot of there's a lot of wisdom in this book <laughs> is never bet against nor lose faith in someone like steve jobs for example i advise against betting against elon musk yes why is that? Because some people have a different operating system. And Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, I think, are two of those kind of people. 
that they just try such radical things that you think it's impossible, right? So you recycle rockets, you send a Tesla into space, you drill tunnels under LA, you make electric cars. Now, not all of this will be successful, but some of them will. You make solar panels for roofs that are supposed to be as cheap, but generate electricity. So he has wild, hairy ideas. Some of them are going to come true. I would not bet against him. And on the other hand, I do drive a Mercedes, but... <laughs> oh, that's right. You are a brand ambassador. That's true. Yes, yes. <laughs> but he's, he, I would not bet against him. And, you know, like every day, SEC is pushing back against him. You know, Model 3 is shipping, not shipping, shipping too fast, shipping too slow. Who knows, right? And... But then, you know, you read, oh, the, the batteries in Australia are working fine and all that. So I wouldn't bet against him. I don't, I don't think that's a rational thing to do. Well, Guy, there's a lot more we didn't cover. And uh, as always, you're always welcome back on Tech Nation. I hope so. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't be the same without you. Let me say I, it that way. Yeah, <laughs> the only reason why I write books is so that I have an excuse to come back on Tech Nation. There you I go. I just want you to know that. <laughs> It's not the royalty. It's not the fame. It's not the leads for speeches. It's, it's the opportunity. It's the opportunity. Talk. That's great. Well, I'm glad we can supply that. if you believe that, that. <laughs> have I got a deal Keep listening, you? yeah. <laughs> My guest today is Guy Kawasaki. His book is Wise Guy, Lessons from a Life. It's published by Portfolio, an imprint of Penguin Random House. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Whether it's speaking to your personal digital assistant at home or talking into your smartphone to convert what you're saying into text, consumers are more and more expecting voice as a means of input. I asked Pat Kondo, the CEO of Intent, is this a limited view? Just how powerful is the capability of voice in our technologies? As smartphones proliferate, uh, more and more usage of those phones become Local And local is all about things like local business, directions, finding something, and voice is the quickest way to get an answer. Everybody's got a uh, view of the web today that means whatever you want to do, you need to download an app, you need to learn that app, you need to, you know, fill it out. But with voice, it learns your voice, it understands what you want and immediately makes the connection. And over the next five years, that's going to be a growing part of world economies because as everybody gets a smartphone, some of these economies, some of these nations, some of these emerging markets, they don't know how to download an app. They don't know how to fill it out. They may not even be as literate as you may think, but they can speak and they can ask, and that's where it's going. Now, you've been working on this, and we'll just say roughly for 20 years in one one variation mm -hmm. or another. Describe to us the evolution of this technology, because you're not saying, well, we're going to build a different one for this kind of language. Or There's a whole technology structure and philosophy and concept behind this. Tell us about that. Well, if you, if you think about uh, humans, there are really five senses, and those five senses are how we communicate with the outside world. 
in the in the 20s and 30s, all these concepts were important, but they got translated into the by Princeton into what's called WordNet. And WordNet became the basis of how you structure a language. And once you could structure a language and you understand all the intonations and all of the characteristics of it, every language has similar structures. And once you do that, you open up the whole world. And now people can simultaneously, you know, input one set of queries and get it back in a different language. It's the same with voice. It's called transliteration. Ask a question in English, maybe you're going to interrogate a Chinese database, get it back in English. All these things exist today. It's all because of the power of computers, the power of what happened in the 60s, but it's just the beginning. And today... We have all of this programming embedded so that you can include this kind of voice understanding in your own system? Yes. It's, it's, it's going to be, uh, uh, if you look at where uh, these systems are today, uh, everything will be able to be uh, executed through a voice command. It may not be as efficient today as typing in a command, but it will become as efficient soon. And that is really where uh, things are headed. That's what is happening today. You'll see at the CES show that there's a lot of new announcements, a lot of new products at the very beginning. We've been talking in technology for a long time, Pat, about how we can all be global. And uh, you put up a website, it can be global. You put up mobile apps, they can be global. But we said, oh, one catch, you got to speak English. <laughs> you got to type English. Now, maybe you can speak English. Give us some insight into how we might think about customers or clients or users of an application or a service we have where the person using it doesn't speak English, but we're trying to, we're trying to help them. How, would, how do we think about that? Well, think about, um, let's take uh, a couple of places. Let's take Southeast Asia or let's take uh, India. Massive growth in economy. Uh, education levels are moving forward. Uh, government edicts to give everyone a smartphone. But how do they communicate with this smartphone? It's going to be through voice. And those economies are going to use voice as a way to Build a middle class, if you will. And one of the more common things would be travel, as an example. You're going to have people asking and interrogating systems for travel. I want to go here. I want to go there. They're not going to download these apps. They're not going to try to figure it out. But they can speak. And so economies all around the world are looking at how do I voice enable certain apps that can make a generational change in the economy and the structure of my country. And voice is one of them. Somebody out there who doesn't speak English, who lives in a country I've never been to, might be enabled to use this. They speak into their smartphone and it converts it to something I understand, probably English. I do what I usually do and return information and it gets translated back into their language. Right. And I would assume can speak it to them yes. and show them some visuals. But, but writing out words does not help no. in this context. No. And, 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 and another uh, example is uh, here in our country, Think about fast food and think about companies that when uh, you want to order a chicken sandwich or you want to order a hamburger, if you could speak, you want to order it. 
the lines get eliminated. Sometimes people may be eliminated. The queue gets eliminated because today you have to download an app. But if you could say, I want a chicken sandwich, and that machine knew that you want Chick-fil-A and you're getting off a plane and it has your locate, your long, the longitude and latitude of where you are, you get off the plane, you walk over to the terminal, and there it's waiting for you. That doesn't happen today. You have to download an app, fill it out, and hopefully they have it waiting for you. Voice enabling of fast food is another huge market. 100 million people a day order fast food. It would be uh, simpler and it would be more economically efficient and potentially change the, the price of the products for the mass market. Several things occur to me right here that I think are important. First of all, the first time we use a new technology, we don't exactly know how it's going to work out. We have to kind of work with it. And a lot of this is serial number one, and that's okay. We also don't know, once we get it kind of working, what the impact is on all the existing economic structures. But at least now we're saying there's going to be impact. This has all got to be worked out down the line. I agree. And um, to your point, culturally, it's also a huge shift. If you go to China, for the last three, four years, voice enablement has been there. You walk down any street in any large city in China, and they're speaking into their phones. They don't do text queries. It's voice enablement. If you look at Tencent and Baidu, they are uh, two of the largest companies in China. They have hundreds of millions of users. Voice enablement of everything from banking to private messaging to ordering products exist today. And culturally, that's where the United States is going. Maybe today it's 2 or 3% of the economy will today be voice-enabled. But, you know, even if our wildest dreams come true, 30 or 40% in five years is a big shift. Well, Pat, this has been terrific. I hope you'll come back and see us again. I would love to. Thank you very much. Pat Kondo is the CEO of Intent. More information is available at intent.com. That's N-T-E-N-T, intent.com. We often think in drug development that we're looking for a single new all-inclusive drug. But in a condition like cancer, the very complexity of the challenge and the differences between individuals and their cancers suggest that making existing treatments more effective has striking advantages. Helen Torley is the president and CEO of Halosyme Therapeutics. There are few things worse than a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Let's talk about the numbers. Uh, yes, uh, today uh, pancreas cancer remains one of the hardest to treat uh, cancers. Um, at Halozyme, we're focused on metastatic pancreas cancer. So that's pancreas cancer that has already spread. And sadly, uh, for more than 60% of patients, by the time it's diagnosed, it has already spread, usually to the liver or to the lungs. Um, it is associated with a dire prognosis. Uh, just 3% of patients uh, diagnosed are alive after five years. Uh, and that's despite a lot of work and effort by scientists to understand the mechanism of the disease better and develop new therapies um, to try and improve upon it. Why has it been so hard to address this cancer? 
Yes, there are many um, theories about that. In part, um, it's a very complex disease. We're only beginning now over the last several years to really understand the genetic basis of it and then try to develop specific targeted therapies. So this is a cancer where um, there aren't many targeted therapies. Um, at Halozyme, we have a targeted therapy. Uh, we're targeting hyaluronin, uh, which in about 35% of metastatic pancreas cancer patients, um, they have a high level of hyaluronin around their tumor. And And what is that? What is hyaluronin? Hyaluronin is a sugar uh, that uh, occurs throughout the body, but in about 35% of pancreas cancer patients, it can accumulate around the tumor cells. And when it accumulates around the tumor cells, it actually attracts water molecules. And when it does that, it creates a high pressure inside the tumor. Now, you might say, why does the tumor want to do that? Um, It does that so that it can uh, compress the blood vessels and reduce the blood flow and the oxygen that's getting into the tumor. Because for these pancreas cancers, they like to have a low oxygen environment to thrive and grow. Um, The therapy that we are developing at Halozyme is called PEG-PH20. It basically uh, attacks and breaks down temporarily the hyaluronin. They release the water molecules, the pressure in the tumor goes down, and we see increased blood flow. And so our therapy is something that we give first. We give PEG-PH20, and then after a period of 8 to 24 hours, patients receive their standard chemotherapy. Today for metastatic pancreas cancer, it's Ibraxian and gemcitabine, two chemotherapies. And what happens is, and we've seen this in our animal models, we can measure an increased concentration of the Ibraxian and the gemcitabine getting into the tumor where you want it to work. And that in animal models translated into better survival. Now, we're currently in uh, phase three clinical testing um, after seeing some very encouraging um, phase two clinical study results where we were able to see that in patients who had high levels of HA in their tumors, adding PEG-PH20 did lead to an extension of the time to progression of the tumor and may also have the potential to impact survival. Uh, But the true test will be our phase three study, and we're well underway with that. Now, this is not just about pancreatic cancer. It happens to be your first candidate. Um, Yes, um, we... There are many tumors uh, where we've been able to identify that there are a good percentage of patients who have got high levels of HA. We're also in clinical testing in uh, gastric cancer, non-small cell lung cancer, cholangiocarcinoma, and gallbladder cancer. Um, These are some of the hardest to treat cancers today. And perhaps part of that may be that this hyaluronin that is accumulating in certain patients uh, may be limiting the effect of today's therapy. And that's what we're testing in our clinical studies. One of the things that I'm hearing here is that proven chemotherapies can become more effective. We're not looking at uh, coming up with new chemos or or different kinds of, of therapies. We're saying, we have some good therapies. Let's try to make them better. And that, that's exactly where we're starting out. We're um, using this to increase the access, we believe, of today's best therapies. So we're combining with chemotherapy like we're in pancreas cancer. In some other cancers, we're combining with some of the new immuno-oncology agents that are called checkpoint inhibitors uh, to see if we can increase the access of those therapies and also increase the access of immune cells. Um, the, the beauty we hope for PEG-PH20 is 
studies that it has pan tumor potential uh, because it is working as uh, an agent that will help these other therapies be more effective in those select patients. And that's important because this is a targeted therapy. It isn't for everybody. It's for those patients who have got a high level of hyaluronin around their tumors. Is what you're talking about considered a drug in itself? Do we have to go through the, you know, the big formal process, phase one, phase two, phase three? Yes, we, we absolutely have to because um, it, while it's facilitating the effect of other therapies, um, it's doing so in a very meaningful way, we hope. That's our target. So we are looking to um, improve the time to progression, as well as the overall survival in pancreas cancer patients, just like with any cancer uh, therapy. And so we, this is a new molecular entity, and it's pursuing that pathway that the FDA has already set out with formal clinical testing, phase one through phase three. Uh, we're in a phase three study at the moment that will enroll over 500 patients. Uh, we expect a data readout of our first endpoint, which is the time to progression in 2019. And uh, we're very hopeful that um, we see some promising results. Um, pancreas cancer patients deserve good news. Uh, it's been a very tough for them with a number of recent drug failures, and uh, we're working very hard to see if our drug is going to be able to meet the standard to gain approval uh, to add to today's best therapies. Well, Helen, thanks so much for joining us. Please come back. Keep us updated. That's lovely. Thank you so much. Very much enjoyed this. Helen Torley is the president and CEO of Halasyme Therapeutics. More information is available at halasyme.com. That's halo, as in halo, H-A-L-O, and zyme, spelled Z-Y-M-E, halasyme.com. For Technation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.